No, it's called, uh, isn't it called Living La Vida Honey Boo Boo? <laughs> Welcome to the Four Corners Crime Cast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie, and today we are concluding our series on Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. You know, that's really good. Yeah, about fucking time. Yeah, this is a long one. And uh, Katie, do you want to remind our listeners where you did your research for this one? Yes, so the book for this one was Invisible Darkness by Stephen Williams, and this whole series was recommended by Grace. Thanks, Grace. Mm -hmm. Invisible Darkness. Isn't all darkness invisible? No. (laughs) I don't like the title. I'm just going to say that. Because shadows, bro. Shadows are invisible darknesses? No, they're not invisible. You can see shadows, but they make dark. (laughs) Shadows make dark, Jake. Dark in the dark is just more dark, okay? So, silence in the dark, I guess. I will get you guys his email, and you can... And uh, where did we leave off last week, Katie? When we left off last week, Paul and Carla had just killed 15-year-old Kristen French after abducting her and keeping her as their quote-unquote sex slave for three days. Now, having the last name of French in Canada is just kind of redundant, right? I'm sorry, Katie, please continue. (laughs) Once the initial missing person report was filed on April 16th, witnesses began calling the police. A majority of them reported that Kristen's abductor was driving a light cream-colored Camaro. And did he have a mullet? They don't have those in Canada. Um, As we're about to find out, there's a bunch of Camaros in Canada, which means there's a bunch of mullets in Canada, even though they don't have the freedom that we have here. actually illegal to... (laughs) have a mullet in Canada. They do things backwards in Canada, so they have really <laughs> long bangs. <laughs> the man who was leading the Leslie Mahaffey murder investigation, Inspector Vince Bevan, was called to the scene as soon as Kristen was reported missing. He decided the Camaro lead would be his best bet, so he requested a report of every registered Camaro in the Niagara region. Once narrowed down, there were 4,688 cars that could have been involved in Kristen's abduction. So I don't know where um, the author, Stephen Williams, got his translation from, but he mentioned multiple times in the book that Camaro translates from Spanish to English to loose bowels, and he kept talking about that. Which it does not. No. We did some fact-checking, and in Spanish, it does not translate to anything. It's not a word. Is there... Any editor on this book, or is this like a self-published thing? That's a good question. Since we are talking about Canada, it's interesting that I found some know-it-all on the internet who says that Camaro means companion in French. Yeah, no, it was not self-published. It was Mm. published by Someone fact-checked that. (laughs) (laughs) It was published by Little Brown and Company, which was founded in 1837. Using valuable time, Inspector Bevan began tracking each lead, totally unaware that Paul drove a gold Nissan 240SX. By the 19th, after hours of eyewitness reports about Camaro sightings, Kristen's body was found lying in a ditch on the side of a road. To make the investigation even worse, a group of criminal profilers concluded that Kristen's murder was totally unrelated to Leslie Mahaffey's. The fact that they were so close together was just a coincidence, which led police in St. Catharines to believe there were two murderous pedophiles running around abducting young girls. If I've learned anything from TV, and I think I have, no detective believes in coincidence, except a Canadian detective, eh? Well, this is the FBI. This is like Quantico. They're still Canadian FBIers. Okay, so St. Catharines is not really a big place, right? I don't believe so, no. 
why would they think that there are two possible monsters in that area? Is it is it that bad of a place? Like two pedophile rapists there? Like what made them think that they were unrelated? Exactly? So with profilers, what they do is they look at the crime and the victim and basically how it was committed. And they were, I guess, not similar enough that they thought that one person could have done both because they were killed in different ways from what they could tell, and they were disposed of in different ways. So that led them to believe, because these aren't people that are, like, coming out of St. Catharines and being like, oh, well, obviously we can't have two murderous pedophiles on a rampage right now because it's such a small city, and the likelihood of that is small. They're just going off of strictly the crime itself. Interesting. But with with these guys, the death was more just the byproduct of what they actually wanted with a sex slave, correct? Like, they weren't out to kill someone, or had it evolved to that? Depends on who you're talking about, and we can talk about my theory later, but I don't think Paul ever intended to kill anyone, but I think Carla probably did. Interesting. All right. What was interesting was that the burial sites were almost complete opposites. While Leslie's body had been dismembered and encased in concrete slabs, Kristen was just left in a ditch partially covered in tree branches. I'm not entirely sure why Paul and Carla put so much effort into concealing Leslie's body, but not Kristen's, but we can assume that they were feeling very confident after Leslie's body was discovered with no evidence on it. They later admitted that they forced Kristen to use multiple douches to ensure that there was no physical evidence from Paul left behind. Do you think that they were um, just, oh, well, we spent so much time trying to conceal that other body and it still got found literally the next day and they were just like, fuck it. It's entirely possible, yeah. They didn't want to, I guess, waste their time again. Yeah, that was a lot of work. Whose idea was the cement? We don't know, for sure. Whoever it was, the other one the whole time was like, no, that was the fucking stupidest idea ever. We're just dumping this on this body on the road. Gotta be. Throw some leaves over it. It's the same as what you did last time with the fucking cement that floated to the top <laughs> and came apart. I think at this point, they're just trying to figure out how they want to do this like they're testing the waters to see what works (laughs) that's a bold move cotton on may 5th the green ribbon task force was formed to catch Kristen's killer led by none other than camaro obsessed inspector bevan a tip line was set up and not long later an anonymous caller let police know about a man he suspected might be involved his name was paul bernardo and none other than van smyrnas paul's business partner and friend was calling him in now, did did this Smyrna's brother kind of have, like, a moral compass, or was he just mad at Paul? I don't think he's ever come out and said why he reported him, but I'm sure he was just fucking creeped out by Paul. I mean, who wouldn't be? <laughs> Guess that's or maybe true. he wanted Paul out of the business. There's so but many possibilities, didn't, but... Didn't he stand in front of the door while he raped while Paul? It was one of the Smyrna's brothers. I'm not sure if it was Van. Okay. There's three brothers, ah. so... Are they like the Canadian mob? They smuggle cigarettes, no. Paul's name was run through Canada's official information center, which holds the names of every person in the country who is charged with or suspected of a major crime. That is a big fucking Rolodex. Despite being involved in the Scarborough rapist cases, Paul's name was nowhere to be found. Detectives still felt it a viable lead, so on May 12th, they headed over to the Bernardo household. Paul was his usual charming self and readily admitted he was involved in the Scarborough rapist case. 
He said that on April 16th, the day Kristen was abducted, he was home alone, writing lyrics to a rap album he was making. He made sure to mention that he wanted to be just like Vanilla Ice. The cops are like, weird flex. At this point, probably not wanting to hear a grown man rave about Vanilla Ice for another hour, the detectives left. They circled the block and parked a ways away, debating if Paul's gold 240SX looked like a Camaro from a distance. They determined it did not. From a distance? I'm actually going to say it definitely could. Like, I wonder if the Canadian Camaro looks a little different. <laughs> it looks like uh, some, something you want to be your true companion. No, for real though, the coupe was it? Do we know if he if Paul had the coupe or the or the hatchback? Because they're totally different ass ends, and <coughs> the Camaro, if I'm not mistaken, actually may have no. It had a trunk. It would have looked more like a coupe, I believe. But some of them had weird, uh, like window fins, depending on what model it was. Like if it was IROC, and that could have made it look like a hatchback. But do cream and gold look the same? From a the, distance? In the dark, I would say, yeah, probably. It was daytime. Well, you know, if you're slightly colorblind, and really, who's to say what's gold and what's cream? Because we all see things from a relative point of view. After Paul told Carla the police had stopped by for a casual visit, she rightfully flipped her shit and told Paul they needed to get rid of the years of evidence they had recorded and placed inside her hope chest. Paul wasn't concerned, seeing as he just chased cops away by talking about Vanilla Ice, but agreed to move the videotapes into a hiding spot in the garage. Did he tell her that he had scared them off with his Vanilla <laughs> vanilla antics? He, I, I like to imagine that he wrapped this whole situation to Carla. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as she came home, he just Police came all. by today and I said, yo, you like Vanilla Ice? And they left. <laughs> <laughs> all right, stop sit on the couch and listen. The cops were here and they heard me bitching. <laughs> and she's just like, no, not this again. For good measure, they decided to legally change their names. They picked the last name Teal based on the character from their favorite movie, Criminal Law. <laughs> so wait, you're telling me that uh, he had a chance to change his name, right? And he didn't change his last name to Van Winkle? Is that Vanilla Ice's name? Yeah. Is it really? Rob yeah. Van Winkle. Yeah. Rob, Robert Van Winkle. A.K.A. Vanilla Ice. A.K.A. <laughs> Juggalo number three. A.K.A. <laughs> Ice Ice Baby. Yeah. I think he was probably torn between his love for the movie Criminal Law and Vanilla Ice. He, so he wasn't Vanilla Teal? <laughs> Realistically, he's impersonating both. He wants to rap like Vanilla Ice, and he wants to be a murderer, rapist like Martin Teal, who's the main character of Criminal Law. So, I think you have to draw a line. Eight days later, Detective Steve Irwin returned a call from one of the members of the Green Ribbon Task Force. He said that he had no reason to believe that Leslie and Kristen's murders were related to the Scarborough rapist cases. Despite the FBI telling the task force that Leslie and Kristen's murders were unrelated, Inspector Bevan was still convinced they were killed by the same person. So he's on he's he's on it with the uh, theory of the of them being connected, but he's still stuck on the Camaro thing. Mm-hmm. Mm. He was unhappy with the autopsy report in Leslie's case, so he decided the best bet would to be have her exhumed and re-examined. The results revealed nothing significant. 
Leslie was not beaten nearly as bad as Kristen, leading everyone except Bevan to believe they were correct about them being unrelated. One piece of evidence that will come back up later is that Leslie had bruises close to the center of her back, both perfectly round and close to the size of a small orange. So, like, maybe somebody put oranges in a pillowcase? Maybe. Don't give it away. That could be... That'd probably be my choice of weapon, because afterwards, you can just eat the oranges. No more evidence. Bevan decided to take his theory to the spotlight, creating a documentary-style crime reenactment to be aired all across Canada. For the first time, the public learned that police believed the crimes were related. Paul and Carla watched and realized that there was very little chance that they would ever be caught. Wait, wouldn't them realizing the crimes were related make them think they would be caught? Yeah, but they had no evidence. They had so little evidence that they had to create a whole entire television show to get leads. And they created the reenactment, and they were like, wow, that's nothing like what happened. If the FBI just says, nah, this isn't related, and then Canada's just like, you know what, we're going to make a whole show, because we think it is. That's the way that goes? Yes. They decided to wait a few months before they would try anything else. Between July and November, they were busy taking trips to Disney World and smuggling cigarettes from the United States. They use the Disney World trips as a cover to smuggle cigarettes? Wait, Disney World's no. in Florida, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a long trip. Yeah, but they can just be coming back through customs. They got their Mickey Mouse ears on. They're like, hey, we just went to the happiest place on earth. Hey, now we're heading back to this shithole. Hey. I think they probably flew. I don't know why you drive from Canada to bring to cigarettes Florida back when you could. They were literally off. They would cross the border and then it would take like fifteen minutes to smuggle cigarettes. <laughs> so were, you're saying that the Royal Mounted Canadian Police are on top of it? They were in the Niagara region. You know that Niagara Falls is in New York and in Canada, right? <laughs> they were on top of it. Once they felt the coast was clear, they started looking for a new sex slave, but one. That would be more like Jane Doe rather than Leslie or Kristen. Oh, and like try to get away? One that was aware that they were going to their house and okay with it and wasn't aware that they were being raped while they were there. Ah, so that means they're going to have to go back to their, uh, what were those drugs that they were divvying out? Halcyon and Halothane. Yeah, the old Hells. They got to go back to the double H's. They decided on a 17-year-old girl named Norma, who used to be one of Tammy's best friends. Carla called her up, and Norma was more than happy to come over and hang out. In early December, they began grooming her, taking her Christmas shopping and to lavish dinners. You can probably already guess the date based on most of their other victims, but for good measure, it was December 23rd when they made their first move. Out of the blue, Carla decided that she wanted to sleep in the spare bedroom, leaving Norma to sleep in the master with Paul. She had learned from her previous visits that Paul was constantly trying to grope her, so she wore multiple layers of clothing any time she was at the house. Despite this, Paul was still able to rape her that night. She returned the following Saturday, during which time Paul continuously asked her why she wouldn't love him. It eventually culminated into an argument and Norma proclaiming she would never return. She stick to that? Yeah. Good for her. Yeah. Like, she's a 17-year-old and these gross older couples, like... Yeah. And she was awake and aware. They didn't use any sort of drugs on her. Oh, so he just raped her. Mm Mm-hmm. Damn. By January, Paul was beginning to spiral out of control. He had begun beating Carla much more frequently and violently, often leaving visible bruises on her face. 
On the 5th, Carla's mother, Dorothy, received two phone calls advising her to look at her daughter's face. She drove to Carla's work, where she discovered her severely beaten. She finally convinced Carla to leave the next day, finding her even more bruised than she'd been the day before. Carla was taken to a friend's house and told Dorothy that Paul had abused her, and hinted at the fact that Paul had been the one to kill Tammy, conveniently leaving out her participation. Police were called, and she was taken to the hospital, where the doctor said it was the worst case of abuse he had ever seen in his career. Paul had beaten Carla with a flashlight, telling his friends it had been quote-unquote inadvertent. Yeah, I don't know how you accidentally beat someone in the face with a flashlight, but... Yeah, especially, this is a picture of Carla right after, and you can see, I mean... He, so did he smash her across the bridge of the nose or something? Um, more than likely hit her in the back of the head. Mm. It also looks like maybe... Uh, there were they were out camping and there were some mosquitoes on her eyes and he just used the butt of his flashlight to kill him for her. accidentally inadvertently. <laughs> but yeah, I mean she was. I don't feel too bad for her. Maybe I should, but I don't. Normally I do, you know, abuse victims and such. But she's kind of uh, the worst person in the world. And she kind of took advantage of the fact that he had beaten her this badly to get out of her involvement and everything is it possible she added a little bit to the to the already existing bruises maybe socked herself up i don't think she needed to no i'm this is all paul like he's definitely violent enough to do this to her i don't and he's a psycho so she could probably egg it on pretty easy if she really want if that was her plan to like be extra abused i don't think at this time it was her plan but i'm sure it was something she had thought of in the back of her mind if she ever needed to get out of the situation She just forgot about the fact that they did all these horrible things together. That's kind of like a, where you can't cut ties, just stuck there. When Paul arrived home, police were waiting to take him to jail. He was taken to the station, charged and interviewed, after which he was released on his own recognizance. After being released from the hospital, Carla moved into her aunt's apartment, where she began writing a diary detailing the significant abuse she'd faced while living with Paul. While I don't doubt that Paul did indeed physically abuse Carla, I do doubt some of the things she wrote in her diary. At this point, I believe she was plotting her revenge and began to embellish her stories to minimize her participation and make Paul seem like he had forced her into most of the situations. Obviously, as we've discussed in too much detail, Carla was willing to be involved and even offered her own sister to Paul as a Christmas present. Although the diary likely included truths, we can take an educated guess that most of the things we're going to discuss were not legitimate. To make things even less believable, the doctor treating Carla never once saw a sign of depression or PTSD, typical diagnoses given to domestic violence survivors. Even Carla's friends and family members noticed that she was in particularly good spirits after the significant beating she received. Yeah, see, that's a little weird. You think she would be a little bit better of an actress than that. Unless she's just super stoked to get away from him. Even in that case, you would still have PTSD from being beaten and abused for so many years. And she pretty much immediately went out and found someone else to have sex with. Interesting. Which is not typical at all. Yeah. Shit really hit the fan on February 1st, 1993, when Detective Steve Irwin received a call from the Forensic Sciences Center. Crikey. If you recall in previous episodes, Paul had willingly given his DNA to be used in the Scarborough Rapist investigation. Well, after months of waiting for it to be tested because it was the 1990s, the results came back and confirmed Paul was indeed the Scarborough Rapist. Good. Took long enough. I mean, 
he willingly came in and gave his DNA, and still months later, they were finally like, oh, shit, that's the guy. It was 93. Yeah. DNA t- testing took forever back then, and they were slammed because everyone wanted everything tested because it was, like, brand new. Yeah, they were getting prepped for a real big DNA case in 94. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. The government knew OJ was going to kill Nicole Brown. Okay, Canada's government? Yep. <laughs> They set up surveillance and tapped his phone and learned that he'd recently been arrested for assaulting his now soon-to-be ex-wife. For whatever reason, when they called to talk to Carla, she was too busy writing a letter to a friend to talk and then took two days to call them back, meaning she's either a really slow writer or it was a very long letter. The letter, you know, it was more of a correspondence. It was more of a book. Yep, that's, that's what it was. She was writing a book, and she was hoping to sell her story to Paramount. That's just kind of the vibe I get, honestly, from her, the way she's writing a diary. and Maybe she's just doing it to keep herself, make herself look more innocent. But in reality, she's going to try to cash in on them Hollywood books. Sounds like she's just really bad at making an excuse. Do they have Canadian Hollywood? Well, it originally, when they called, they got Dorothy. And she was like, oh, she's writing a letter. She'll have to call you back. And then it took two days, and I don't know what they said. I assume they didn't really say anything to her, but... It was a Morse code letter. I'm sure they were like, why did it take you two fucking days to call us for one letter? Unless it was a lot of letters. She wouldn't be available for four days, during which time she met a man and began sleeping with him. Again, not typical of a person who survived domestic violence, as serious as she claimed. As they were waiting to hear back from Carla, Inspector Bevan and the Green Ribbon Task Force got involved, making Paul their prime suspect in the deaths of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Detectives were sent to interview Carla on February 9th. She started out perfectly happy, but began to get nervous and fidgety once detectives asked her for fingerprints. She told detectives that Paul was absolutely the Scarborough rapist and Leslie and Kristen's killer. Like, as soon as they wanted her fingerprints, she was like, just rolled over on Paul? Oh, Pretty yeah. Much. Yeah. <laughs> I think she kind of wanted a way to explain away why her fingerprints might be there. I don't know how they would get on a body if you weren't involved, but like. Well, obviously, I was in the house, and fingerprints could transfer off of the TV remote onto the body. I, w- I didn't do it, though, but he definitely, I know that he killed, murdered, and raped. As soon as the detectives left, she called criminal defense lawyer George Walker and made an appointment to meet him. On the 11th, she met Walker and explained that she and Paul had been involved in the deaths of Tammy, Leslie, and Kristen. She also told him that there was numerous videotapes of the rapes of all three girls, but she had been unable to find them before she'd left the house. She had a big request from Walker. She wanted full immunity for testimony against Paul. Her request was that she would go and give them as much evidence as she could as long as she didn't get implicated in any of the crimes, even though she was obviously going to tell the story that would implicate her in all of the crimes. She wanted no criminal charges. That seems a little reachy. I mean, that's pretty much what she got. That sucks. Reminds me of Matlock. Walker got in contact with the prosecutor's office, who in turn got in contact with Inspector Bevan to discuss the deal. They obviously needed more information, but were very intrigued by Carla's supposed knowledge. The one thing that contributed the most to Carla eventually receiving a deal was an article written by famous FBI agent Roy Hazelwood, Janet Warren, 
and none other than Mr. Park Dietz. Isn't Park Dietz your favorite? No. I don't want to say too much shit, but I do not like him. I will say it. He quit the entire world of forensics and uh, started uh, doing nuts. Dietz. Deets nuts. Deets nuts. <laughs> if you guys have been listening to us for a while or listened to our series on Andrea Gates, you know of my strong dislike for Deets. I quite literally opened this book not knowing a ton about the trial portion of Carla and Paul's story and just knew in my heart that Deets would somehow be involved and somehow fuck it all up. And fuck it up he did, even if it was vicariously through this article, which is titled Compliant Victims of the Sexual Sadist. The article covers seven women who were interviewed after escaping an abusive relationship with a sexual sadist. Discusses how the women were slowly controlled and abused to the point that they became co-defendants with their boyfriend or husband in acts similar to Paul and Carla. This isn't a bad study, it was never peer-reviewed, and can't really be called a study, but it does give insight from women who actually experience sexual sadists and their crimes. The issue relating to Carla is that it discusses in-depth the type of women that get into these relationships, women that have low self-esteem and are not interested in sadism before the relationship began. We know that Carla was one, nowhere near self-conscious, and two, was very much into and happily involved in the sadism. But despite this, they still somehow believed that Carla had been abused into taking part in the rapes and murders with Paul, which would eventually lead to serious consequences. So does this kind of lead into the weaker sex theory side of things where they believe that women are not capable of doing horrible acts by themselves? Like there's no woman that would have this thought in their head that would want to be a part of this. So they just are abused to the point where they have to comply. I think for Carla, definitely, because she didn't really fit the bill of like, I mean, at this point, what did really we really know? We knew about Eileen Warnos, who is probably all these people knew about, and mm-hmm. Carla was nowhere near like her. She was pretty much rich, and she was blonde, and she was white, and she was preppy, and she was nothing like what you would think someone in, like, a creepy sadist dungeon sex club would be, and so I think that they kind of looked at her, and they were like, oh, there's no way that she wanted to be tied up and... Well, they stereotyped her. No, the sexism, the, the sexism works kind of both ways where sometimes it uh, does pay off. Hot take. Sexism, good sometimes. I think if she had looked different or behaved differently and she wasn't this, like, bumbling blonde that you would see in a movie, they would have maybe not taken so much credence with this article, but she was pretty, basically. She was a pretty white blonde woman. On the morning of February 17th, Inspector Bevan and the task force still had no plans to arrest Paul. They were perfectly happy surveilling him where they built their They were perfectly happy surveilling him while they built their case. Things changed when they watched as Paul exited his house with a woman. She was someone Paul had dated previously, and she was there consensually, but police didn't know that. Because he's already a suspect, so they're just gonna be like a little quick on the trigger there. Well, he's already um raped a ton of women and killed three people and abused the shit out of his wife so they were a little concerned about him being alone with a woman they didn't want to wait and see what happened no please don't do that they're like that not not just wait and see concerned she might be another victim they mobilized their emergency task force and took paul into custody 
He was arrested for three of the Scarborough rapes that DNA linked him to, the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French, and the rape of the 17-year-old girl discussed earlier. The task force set up a full interrogation room, staged wall-to-wall with props to scare Paul into confessing. They didn't realize that Paul would actually enjoy seeing his work laid out in front of him and would be even more confident with the props. After over eight hours of questioning, the task force led Paul to jail with absolutely no new information. Doesn't, wouldn't the props be like kind of working against them if the person is like a sociopath or a narcissist or something like that? Yeah, and 100%. they weren't aware of that. They just sort of thought that they would scare him into confessing. The FBI profiler's already left. Uh. I can't remember exactly. I think it was probably Bevan's idea, and I know there was someone telling them that it was a really bad idea, but they were like, no, we're going to do it. Just because sometimes it does work. I mean, sometimes you can lie to somebody or show them something that's not real, and they'll be, like, automatically scared into confessing, but they didn't, I don't think, really knew the extent of how psychopathic Paul was. I see. Do they call them, like, detectives in Canada, or is it, like, in Britain where they're, like, street street chief, whatever they call them? I think they use inspector. Vince Bevan was inspector, and that's, like, one of the higher rankings you can have, but I'm not honestly sure. The next day, Paul was arraigned, and to everyone's surprise, his father was in court that day as well. Ken Bernardo had been charged with the molestation of his granddaughter, the child of his daughter, who he'd also molested. While the media had a field day, forensics teams prepared to raid Paul and Carla's house, looking for any and every piece of evidence they could find. Of all the videotapes they had recorded, the team only found one, a minute-long clip of Carla participating in sex acts with two unknown females. As they watched it, they realized that Carla looked like a voluntary participant and that she was truly enjoying herself. Now, these two unknown females, though, they weren't children? One of them, I believe, was Kristen. Oh, shit. And I'm not sure they ever identified the other one. On February 25th, a deal was finally made between Carla's lawyer, George Walker, and the prosecutor. They agreed on two charges of manslaughter, one for Leslie and one for Kristen. She would be sentenced to 10 years for each victim to be served concurrently, or at the same time, making her eligible for parole in a little over three years. What, you only got to serve like a third before they give you parole or what? Yeah, Canada's prison system is pretty... Lenient? You only get one life, eh? I would call it reformed. Hmm. The prosecution agreed to write a letter to the parole board supporting early release, and after Carla's arrest, she would be released to her parents rather than go to jail. The only thing she had to do was give any interview police wanted and be completely truthful in all of them. The first thing she would be required to do was undergo a complete psych evaluation at a local hospital. She was admitted on March 4th and stayed for seven weeks. Carla was able to manipulate her psychiatrist into believing she was suffering from severe depression, anxiety, and PTSD. She was prescribed basically any drug she asked for, at one point taking 130 milligrams of Valium a day. A normal dose of Valium ranges from 2 to 10 milligrams 2 to 4 times a day, at most 40 milligrams daily. Even those taking it for alcohol withdrawal only take maximum 40 milligrams, and alcohol withdrawal can literally kill you. Interesting. How Carla was able to function taking 130 milligrams daily, and most of it being administered either intramuscular or IV, I have no idea. During her first week at the hospital, she was on so many medications that she had a seizure. 
One of the only beneficial things she did during her hospital stay was write a letter to her family admitting that she and Paul drugged and raped Tammy, leading to her death. Because of the letter, two years were added to her 10-year sentence, making her time served four years and four months. That's at least a little bit, but or that's a little bit better, but that's still such minimal amount of time for as much as she was involved in. Three murders, yeah. It's probably the smallest sentence anyone's ever gotten for three murders. Right. Well, who was the guy that we talked about in Colorado who was sentenced from 1 to 25 years for a murder? I think it was maybe a manslaughter charge, but he's still a murder. It was like one of our first episodes, but he got like 12 years, I think. Pretty, pretty low. On June 10th, Carla and her lawyer took a trip to Kingston Prison for Women, where Carla would be serving her four-year sentence. The deputy warden gave them a full tour, explaining to Carla what serving her sentence would be like. They also made agreements to transfer her directly from court to the prison's medical ward. Carla's mother bought her a color television for her cell, and after the three-day trial, Carla was taken to prison. She stayed in the prison hospital until August 8th, when she was transferred to her single-person cell in the max security ward. She enrolled in a university program studying studying sociology and psychology. Her entire sentence was basically summer camp. And is she now someone's doctor? (laughs) No. You can't... These were, like, non-degree programs. I don't think they actually let you get a degree in this prison. In Canadian prison. Oh, she's a Facebook doctor then these days, though, probably. Oh, I mean, anyone that's ever taken one psychology class can diagnose you. Yeah. (laughs) Katie does it all the time for free. Yeah, she tells me everything that's wrong with me. She goes to work. I don't. I tell you to go to the doctor. This is Petco, and all these people walk in like, my rabbit has a case of PTSD, and Katie looks at it and says, yep, and throws a whole bunch of Valium at it. (laughs) I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not going to be able to give anyone meds. Ah. After the police searched every inch of Paul and Carla's house, Paul's lawyer Ken Murray was allowed in for discovery of his own. Somehow, police had not found the videotapes of any of the rapes. What they did find was audio recordings of Paul's work on his rap album. For some reason, they thought it was relevant and showed his mindset, but I think they just wanted to laugh at him. Who doesn't? we're going to do. Paul's rap name was Young Hype, and his debut album was going to be called Deadly Innocence. Prepare to have your mind blown by these lyrics. Rory? Yo, 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 Young Hype! I'm young and I'm hype. I get paid to rock the nation. Sometimes I'd be cool. Sometimes I'd be chillin'. Sometimes I'd be killin'. I'm one in a million. I'll drain your brain and steal your chain. I got no remorse. I got no shame. Yeah. Young hot big boy. And that's not us making fun of him. That's literally what he wrote and recorded. Yeah, the only thing is that Rory delivered it in a much better cadence. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it should be. I'm young and I'm hype. I paid to Rock Nation. Sometimes I be cool. Sometimes I be chillin'. I like how it just reads like a list of to-dos for the day. Yeah. Get paid to Rock the Nation. Chill. Be cool. <laughs> Kill. Chill some more. Steal so, your chain. I love I'll drain your brain and steal your chain. Though. I do actually that's, like that's that That's actually line. a pretty good alliteration. <laughs> It'll drain your vein and steal your chain if you know what I mean. Well, he's got no remorse, and he got no shame. Dude, Young Hype probably could have been could have been the next Vanilla Ice. 
I mean, he's coming with these smacking ass lyrics that are just like, yo, I'll steal your chain and take your brain and eat the fame. I don't know. That was ICP. Also, oh, yeah, yeah, that like ICP. Also, he was way ahead of his whole his whole thing with the name Young, you know? Like, I just he was ahead like, of his time. I, he couldn't think of anything to rhyme with chilling. No. And I like that he just randomly, sometimes that'd be cool. Yeah. Only that, sometimes. Very rarely. That doesn't rhyme with rock the nation or chilling. Like his next lines, the cool doesn't go anywhere. I don't understand. Actually, the whole nation, that whole line, I get paid to rock the nation. Sometimes I'd be cool. That doesn't belong anywhere in there. Yeah, it's like he's just describing. Like, I, I'm young hype. Uh, I get paid to rock the nation. Sometimes I'd be cool. I wonder if he ever did get paid to rock the nation. You know what? I bet the newspapers got paid with a headline that rocked the nation. Scarborough rapist caught pretty okay at rap. What? Pretty he was okay. not. <laughs> he wasn't pretty okay. I mean, it's Canadian. Like, the oh, biggest... that's true. This, the fucking bar is set low up there. I mean, Drake. This you guy call was that the bar Drake. being set low? He's like one of the most famous people on the world right now. He but is Drake a started rapper. as a terrible rapper named Jimmy on Degrassi. He was in a wheelchair. I know. I've seen all of Degrassi. All of his, so have I, Katie. Why have you guys both seen so much I used Disney to, Channel? Okay, so I used to watch. It's not Disney. Um, <laughs> it's like. Degrassi was like. It goes there, Jake. Yeah. So actually, I How watched it with. Don't? These two girls, uh, shout out to both of them, Andy and Yellow. He also wasn't in a wheelchair the whole time. He got shot. No, he got shot by the kid who got bullied. Yeah. Like, Degrassi was way Yellow. ahead of its time, yeah. honestly. It Teen pregnancy, there. school shootings, they were they had everything. It was it actually was pretty toxic, though. Dramatic. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, All no. the relationship. Anyway. Y- you could probably watch Degrassi now and get a whole glimpse into how... Jay and Silent Bob were on it. Yeah, there's like 22-something seasons of it. Yeah. They kept going for uh, a very I watched long time. The Next Generation was the only one I watched because I watched it with these two girls, Andy and Yellow. It was a, it's actually Andrea and Christine, but Andy Pants and Yellow, what they were called. I thought that it was... It's my cat's f- name. <laughs> I thought it was like your favorite mints and your favorite color of Skittle. You know, we used to eat a whole bunch of candy while we watched Degrassi. Then we literally watched like... On July 28th, with Paul's trial quickly approaching, his lawyer contacted another criminal defense attorney named John Rosen. Which is, I don't think, what you ever want your lawyer to do, right? No. Murray asked, or begged, Rosen to take over the case, but wouldn't explain why. Once he'd convinced Rosen to take the case, he got a call from Murray's own lawyer. Murray had retained him after finally admitting that he had been holding on to the videotapes, the ones showing Paul and Carla drugging and raping women for close to four months. What the fuck? Had he watched them? Oh, yeah, he'd made copies. He, uh, (laughs) so he was just sitting on this evidence that could potentially send his client to prison forever. Very vital evidence that he did not want the police to have. So that's why he recused himself? Is that what it's called? He Yeah, and hired his a own lawyer, defense attorney because this was a major, major ethical violation and he would be going before the, the, the bar bef- immediately, okay. pretty much. So do we believe that he used these videos for his own sexual gratification? No. Oh. Nobody could watch something like this. A normal person, at least, that isn't a sadist like Paul could watch something like this and find it. 
I don't think a normal person could watch this and not turn the person in that gave them the videos. When would be my argument. Well, that's his, his client. Yeah, he's a defense attorney. The only you reason... you got to step outside the courtroom. That's what he did. That's the exact that's the situation that issue. happened. <laughs> oh. All right. The, Good job, Murray. The only reason he held on to them was to keep the police from having them. Don't you want the police to have them? Not when you're a criminal defense attorney. Okay, you know what? you got to step outside the courtroom. No one but Murray and likely Paul knew that he had had them and that he'd made copies and hidden them. Not only was this a huge issue for Paul's case, it was a huge issue for Carla's confession and plea bargain. When they finally watched the tapes, they discovered that Carla had lied to them or left out some pretty significant facts. Their deal was based on Carla's truthfulness, and now they had physical proof that she had not been truthful. They decided to go to the jail and question her again to see if she would continue to lie before they showed her the tapes. The prosecution and Carla's lawyer finally made a decision... She would get blanket immunity for any facts that she quote-unquote remembered after watching the tapes again. It was here that Carla's plea bargain was titled A Deal with the Devil. So the the original deal was that she should be truthful, but now that they learned that she hadn't been truthful, they, they couldn't just go back on the original deal and slap her with all the charges? They could. They didn't want to. They wanted her evidence, too. Oh. Okay. They wanted her to testify on top of having the videotapes just to, I guess, make sure that the videotapes of everything and DNA evidence would, thinking it wouldn't be enough. I'm not entirely sure, but okay. they thought it was a good idea to leave the plea deal in place. On June 25th, 1995, Paul's trial was in full swing and Carla was called to testify. The prosecution's goal was to show the jury that Carla was suffering from PTSD, battered woman syndrome, and was a compliant victim of a sexual sadist. This allowed defense attorney Rosen to bring in his own psychiatrist, who testified that based on Carla's MMPI, she was the type of person to malinger, to crave attention, would be easily slighted if her needs were unmet, and was shallow, exploitive, and had little genuine concern for anyone but herself. What does MMPI mean? It's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, which is a 500-question questionnaire basically that is graded and tells you your personality type it's gotta be hard to convince someone to take a 500 question survey when they're psychopath or in there for murder probably not in jail there's nothing to do <laughs> trick them like here will you take a survey about the jail yeah it's i think most commonly used in like forensic psychology so it's easy to get them to say yes but it goes pretty quick it's not like super intense questioning that you have to go through and, like, read and answer. I think it's a lot of yes, no, yes, no. Rosen also planned to prove that Carla took a much larger part in the murders of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French than she had claimed. She had always told police that she took no part in the murders and that she had been at work the entire time Paul was dismembering Leslie, encasing her body in cement, taking the cement to the lake, and cleaning the house. What Rosen discovered when reviewing the autopsy, in my opinion, showed that Carla was actually the one responsible for Leslie's death. On Leslie's back were two bruises, consistent with two knees the size of Carla's being sat atop the girl as she was suffocated. Rosen's theory was that Paul didn't want to kill Leslie at all, that as he was preparing to take her back home, Carla killed her to ensure that they wouldn't be caught. Is it possible that Paul just had dainty knees? I mean, no, you could like physically see that these two spots, these two bruises, were the size of Carla's knees. That would be the first time Carla's knees were the ones doing the bruising. 
Rosen also presented the theory that Carla had killed Kristen as well. As Paul was out getting them food, Carla beat Kristen with the rubber mallet she'd been given as a weapon to prevent her from escaping. Because the autopsy couldn't show that she had died of strangulation, and because it was obvious she'd been beat, Rosen believed Carla used the mallet to kill Kristen French. Rosen's theory was the only explanation ever given as to why Kristen had suffered such severe injury to her face. And finally, Rosen was able to prove that Carla was a willing participant in the rape of her sister Tammy. If you recall, I mentioned that Tammy had been on her period during the assault, and Carla had said, quote, fucking disgusting when she was performing oral sex on her. I do recall. I wish I didn't, but I do. Rosen was able to show that Tammy was wearing a pad in the videotape and that Carla had said fucking disgusting not because she was disgusted by sexually assaulting her own sister, but because she was upset she was on her period. See, I told you I didn't just put that fact in there just for... Funsies. To torture you yeah. guys. Yeah, funsies. That's what I, how I would describe that fact for sure. After four months of trial, the jury, of course, found Paul guilty on all nine charges. He was given the maximum sentence allowable in Canada, life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. What they are allowed to do, though, is deem someone a dangerous offender, which removes the possibility of parole. A special cell was built to hold Paul for the rest of his life to ensure that he was safe from attack, being as he was a pedophile in prison. They just kill him after 25 years? Just kidding. I hope they die within the 25 years. We really don't want to hold you more than 25 years. It's not our way, eh? They let you go. And Paul, so people tend to freak out because Paul has gone before the parole board a few times, but he's never going to get out of prison. No. It's just a formality. No, they just have to do it. It's after 25 years, they have to do it every year or what? I'm not sure exactly the time frame. I know that maybe it was after 25. I'm not entirely sure of the time frame of their their prison sentences but he's gone before the parole board twice i think and everyone like freaked out both times and there was no reason to he's not getting out carla served her sentence lavishly having two relationships during her time in prison the first was with a trans man housed with her the next was with a convicted murderer who was housed in the men's prison in the same building apparently they were able to tear back the fence and have just enough room to touch each other and exchange underwear okay so you know, dudes are gross and nasty. I'm sure they'll take a woman's used underwear. We know that. They'll buy it off of the internet. But what woman wants a man's used underwear? Especially prison underwear. That's the question. That's disgusting. Yeah, that's pretty gross. <laughs> yeah. like you want my skid marks, baby? Let me pass them through the yeah, fence to the, you. I'm going to wear these for a couple days. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, like they don't have probably the best toilet paper in prison. And they also... I don't think shower every single day. I think people do. Yeah. I guess it depends on what kind of person you are. It depends and on if, how comfy you are with your own wiener. Well, <laughs> I would say it's more so if you're able to take a shower every day without being scared of being attacked in the shower. So I think if you're not a pedophile, you're a lot, or maybe even a woman killer. Woman, woman and child killers, I think they have to wash their backs in the showers. But if you're just in there for holding up Quickie Mart... You I don't think that's how that works, but... Um, well, yeah, if you're affiliated, you got to get in with the right gangs based on your color of your skin, I Roar. Th- I think, though, that most people shower and shower often in prison. There is racism in prison. There is. Anyway, <laughs> still There's gross. racism everywhere. <laughs> it's not just in prison. It's extra racism-y in prison. Prism? On July 4th, 2005, Carla was released from prison and moved to Quebec. 
A few months later, all restrictions were lifted. She eventually moved to Guadalupe, where she married the brother of her lawyer and had three children. In 2014, she moved back to Canada and was declared a public figure, meaning that she has less of a right to privacy than the normal public and cannot sue reporters that reveal her location. During Luca Magnata's arrest and trial, claims were made that he and Carla had been involved in a relationship, but there's no evidence to support this. What if they just found, like, in her house, Luca Magnata's dirty underwear? (laughs) (laughs) Just embroidered LM on the back. I mean, if you think about it, I don't know how much you guys know about the Luca Magnata case, but they would... He's like Paul 2.0. Ish. Except he was gay, but I don't know. Paul was gay? No, Luca Magnata was gay. Oh, right. As of today, Carla seems to be living her life like any normal citizen, with the occasional outrage when parents discover she's living near them and her children are attending the same school as theirs. So does Canada remember remember this fairly readily? Like this was a huge deal? Yeah, this is oh, like... Oh, we remember, eh? One of the worst criminal couples to probably ever exist. Fuck these assholes. Yeah, for and, sure. I mean... There's probably more evidence I could have given proving that Carla was the one that killed them, but I wholeheartedly believe that she is responsible for the murders of Kristen and Leslie. And Tammy. And, yeah. I mean, I don't I don't want to say it was unintentional, but I don't think that they, like, set out with the intent to kill her, but I think for sure that Carla set out with the intent to kill Leslie and Kristen. Yeah. She knew that they were not going to leave the house because Paul was the one supposedly that was saying that we need to stop using the halothane because obviously it's not working and I don't want anyone else to die. And so I think he would have just let them go and trusted that they were scared enough to not tell anyone and she wasn't okay with that. Ultimately, he would have gotten caught sooner probably. Probably. Maybe. 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 I mean, they went so long without getting caught. Yeah, but they wouldn't have if, if he was just letting all their victims go. One of he those victims let is going to tell He had, what, 16 rape victims oh, that yeah. he let go alive? And I none of them, true. I mean, they all went to the police, but they still was, were not able to catch him. Yeah. He so. was, uh, yeah, master rapist. That's not a thing. So is that going to do it for us this week, Katie? That is it, and we are finally done with this. Woo! Yay. Fireworks shoot off. Um, Fuck them should say thank you to grace who recommended this hope you're happy grace yeah i hope this was everything you expected it to be and i would like you to email us and let us know what you thought about how terrible this was what you were recommending yeah because i don't i honestly don't think she knew how bad this was when she recommended it so now she does all right guys if you have any questions comments or concerns feel free to send us an email at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com that's f-o-u-r cornerscrimecast at gmail.com and you can find us on facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast our facebook group fourcornerscrimecast discussion group on twitter at fourcornerscast and on instagram at fourcornerscrimecast and don't forget to give us a rate and review while you're on Apple Podcasts. Give us a follow on Spotify. And check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com, where you can get a full episode list or you can suggest an episode that you would like to hear, like Grace did on this one. Or you can get a free sticker from our merch store by typing in the code Bingo Bango at checkout, and we will send it out to you for free. And we are out of stickers, but we have more on the way. So don't ever let anyone call your Camaro a 240SX. Unless it lets you slide under the nose of law enforcement for God knows how long. Then it's okay. Merry guys. Talk to you next week. See ya. Adios, motherfuckers! 
my dad was my dad and said, don't listen to that, jerk your heart out. 